Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, friends of failure, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. I am here with none other than John David Mann co-writer of The Go-Giver, who I also had Bob Berg on the podcast before. Hey there, John. How are you? I'm great, Ben. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I thought you were going to speak for a longer period of time than that. but uh... <laughs> No, I don't have much to say, uh, at least at first. So what I like to do is have the, uh, have the guests do a little bit of a shameless brag about the things that they've done, a little bit of an inflation of your ego before we deflate it with some of the failure type talk. Ah, excellent. I started out as a young child. Um, like everyone. <laughs> like most of you. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you mentioned the go-giver. The go-giver is, is of the 30 plus books I've published. The go-giver is without question the, the most well-known it's, you know, kind of what I'm known for. Um, but I didn't start out as a writer, so I'll just do my my, my curriculum vitae there real quickly. I have kind of a, a strange checkered past. Uh, I started out in life as a classical musician, as was my dad and both my brothers, my my older brother, my younger brother is also a musician. We're all musical family, and uh, I started out as a cellist, symphonic cellist and recital cellist and composer. And that was going to be my career. But I got my attention, got grabbed by nutrition and natural health, and I became involved in that field. And then I became involved in education. When I was 16, I dropped out of high school and with some friends started my own high school. And uh, I went to it as a student, graduated, and then went back and joined the faculty and taught there for a year before I went off on some new adventures. Um, and that school went on for about a decade after that, after I left. What'd you name it? What if you're naming a high school? What would you name it? It was called Changes Inc., which is sort of an oxymoronic title if you think about it. <laughs> Incorporated <laughs> Changes. Um, yeah, Changes, Changes Inc. was was my my first big stab at entrepreneurship, I guess. Who knew it would change to Inc. with a K? Hey, that's right, exactly. Good, good call. And so I, everything I did, uh, uh, music and education and nutrition and natural health, I always seemed to be the guy who was writing the newsletter or editing the newsletter or editing the article or working on the journal. And so I, um, I got involved in writing. First, I got involved in, in, uh, in direct, sale, direct sales, and I built an organization that, that generated me a couple million dollars, about 100,000 people. So I kind of got steeped in the world of sales and selling. Unrelated to writing sales or is it sales related to? The no, it's just like man sales, nutritional products. Okay. So just, okay. Yep. So um, I kind of learned that world, but I ended up writing about it and I left the actual selling and, and sales training behind to more write. And I did a bunch of ghostwriting and I'd spent two decades editing other people's stuff for a series of business journals before I started to actually co-author books and then author books. And that's how I landed where I am. The Go-Giver was my break, my big break in terms of, of actually publishing books. Did you think uh, it was going to be a big break when you wrote yeah, it? Or? I did. When Bob, Bob Berg, my buddy Bob Berg and I wrote that book, we absolutely believed that it was going to be a bestseller. That was our plan. And 
most of my plans in life have not worked out. Most of the best things that have happened to me in my life have not been as the result of a plan of mine. Were you ever as certain as the go-giver one? Did you have the same mentality? This is going to be the breakthrough and it wasn't? Yes. I have had absolutely the same mentality about a whole slew of other books and been wrong. Yeah. But hey, you're right but, once, twice, three times, a yeah. week, whatever. And once you're right once. It's kind of like being an entrepreneur, you know, and starting a dozen businesses and one or two of them works. Yeah. Well, that may be all it takes to have an incredibly successful life. Well, the go-giver kind of made a career for me, but um, uh, yeah, there, there have been, as you probably know, there have been four, five other go-giver books since that time. And I've written a bunch of other parables. Mm -hmm. Parable being a short story, like a fable almost, that that makes a point. It's kind yeah. of different but it is based in reality. So like, I know there's a Bob Proctor, who I believe passed away last year, yeah. Um, who is the Pindar character and the go-giver, right? If, if I'm yeah, there's inspirations wrong. from real people. Um, Pindar in the go-giver books, it, 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 Bob Proctor was the inspiration for that. And there's inspiration for a couple of other characters as well, but mostly it's fictional. I mean, in terms of the story, yeah. the principles are eternal. The principles are not fictional. The principles are, are real life as as we best we can present it. I've done other parables with, with David Bach, the finance guy, with Spencer Johnson, the Who Moved My Cheese guy guy to mm -hmm. with my wife uh last just last year the go-giver marriage which was an absolute joy um i did one with a a, a chef a, a world-renowned chef with a recipe so i've done a whole bunch of parables in different fields i've also done a bunch of different people's memoirs you know writing their life story i've done a bunch of non-fiction books kind of like how-to and principle books mm -hmm. um and i've now i'm i'm writing novels i've got a series of three thrillers out. So I've kind of had my fingers in a lot of different writing pies and that's the world I live in now. I'm a writer. Okay. So, End just, so of can, intro. just so I can track through all of this, what started, so your family was a bunch of musicians. You were just born into a musicianship kind of a apprenticeship uh, in your family. Yeah. Yeah. And then much. they were like, you're going to learn because I know how to play music, but I didn't learn the theory. I just learned how to play guitar. And then I eventually learned better and better and better, but never the theory. So I maxed out at a certain point, but you started with the theory, which is the way to do it. I'm, I've been told. You know, it, it, not, not really. I, and that's interesting because I'm a firm believer that theory always follows practice, not the other way around. Um, I'm mostly self-taught, by which I mean, I, I haven't spent a lot of time in formal institutions of learning. I have no mm -hmm. college degree. I never went to college. You made your own high school instead. Uh, yeah, my father was a, a a renowned academic. He was a musicologist. His specialty was was Handel. Wait, is that a thing? Musicologist? It is totally a thing. It is the person who studies the history of music and the theory of music. I have to fact check that one. But he was also a practicing conductor. He was a, a world-renowned choral conductor. I played un, under in his ensembles, you know, a, a bunch of times. Um, so he he was a he was kind of my model for uh, just about everything. But but he was my model for theory and practice. He had you know exhaustive theoretical understanding of music, but it all sprang from the musical experience. He was steeped in the musical experience. He grew up. In a, in a school that was founded by Martin Luther, for crying out loud, it doesn't get mm. much more, you know, historical Germanic Lutheran tradition than that. So when he performed Bach and Handel, it was like, you know, it was like, 
I don't know what it was like. It was, it was like speaking his native language, literally. Um, and so that's how I feel about everything. Sorry to interrupt, but a conductor, how much of it is BS? How much of it is legit? Like during the whole, the whole hand wavy parts, are we talking like 90% is useful? What do we, what's the percentage? You can, you can actually, it's a great question. You can actually expand that question legitimately and say, like in a corporation, the CEO, how much of that is like, you know, how much, what does the leader really do? I think in the orchestra, probably more than in the company. What a leader does is enormous. Like what did, you know, I, Lee Iacocca really do for the Chrysler Corporation of America? You know, what did, what did, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All great leaders of great organizations, they have enormous influence. And it looks like they're just waving their hands or just standing up and talking or just, you know, meddling in, in manager's business. Mm-hmm. But but leadership is an extraordinary thing. It's been kind of my, my favorite topic my whole life. The first novel, the first thriller, Steel Fear, mm-hmm. came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was a serial killer novel. Yeah, it was about a disgraced Navy SEAL stalking a serial killer on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yes, mm-hmm. it was a mystery and a thriller and it was pulse pounding and there was a lot of action. It was, it, But at the heart of it, it was actually a parable about leadership. It was a story about great leaders, mediocre leaders, and genuinely awful leaders. And what and what influence leadership, great and terrible, can have on so many people. And so the answer to the conductor question is it has enormous influence. And I learned that kind of growing up at my dad's knee. Well, I'm sure it's a good one too. Cause like so my experience, I've been fired from every job I've had since graduating college, which is six for six, which is part of the failure guy. Hey man. Brand. Good deal. It was five for six when I started the podcast. So I got fired during the podcast. Nice. Practice what you preach. I like that. Yep. Yep. I wasn't intending to be fired, but uh, you know, it seems like corporate You walks the talk, man. Corporate America did not want me, but I've experienced a lot of uh, mediocre to bad leaders. I've not yes. experienced as many of the ones you're talking about. So I would have loved to have ones who are listening. I like the open book management policy type of thing where they let people know what's going on. Yeah. Encourage mistakes and not by, not by you should make them, but realize that they happen. But uh, a lot of times it's like all the corporate politics and red tape get in the way. And the second go-giver book. Is it called the Go-Giver Leaders? Exactly. The Go-Giver Leader was, you know, born a lot out of my experiences in leadership. You know, first it was in sales leadership where I had, you know, a gigantic organization. Um, but it was also out of leadership in in so many different fields. The the book Steel Fear, my, my first thriller I was mentioning, mm-hmm. I wrote with this friend of mine, a former Navy SEAL, who was the, the master instructor at the Navy SEAL sniper course. And it, there were, it, it's totally fiction, obviously, but there were threads of his actual experience in the military threaded through that book of great leaders and terrible leaders and how, you know, one bad leader can create financial catastrophe, personal catastrophe, life or death catastrophe, um, you know, can destroy a country, can destroy an entire organization. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing. Would you say a leader who does almost nothing is better than someone who actively harms the, I, I think that that probably depends on the circumstance and what the organization is facing, what the situation is. I mean, if you take that that leader who does basically nothing, you put him in Winston Churchill's place in the middle of World War II, that would not have been a good thing. 
mm-hmm. but there are some circumstances where a do-nothing leader is is you know, a hands-off leader is probably the least <laughs> of all evils so you know that, that's a that's a depends answer uh, okay so let's talk about some failures i don't know if any of these specifically resulted in some significant failures if changes inc or any of these other ones kind of fell apart for you but feel free to talk about any of like the ones that you i try to go with the ones that you learn the most from you know I mentioned that most of the best thing, all of the best things that happened in my life have come about not as a result of my plan. Um, and they've also, another way of saying that is they've all happened by accident. Another way of saying that is they've all happened as a result of my own failures. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, I give you a great idea, a great example. My my first real business, publishing business, a, a, a journal, failed so miserably. I grew too fast. I had a, a journal, a natural health journal that was growing very, very quickly, very, very popular. Physical print, obviously. Uh, physical print. This is back in the yeah, yep. back in the eighties. There's physical print, and I got very ambitious, and I was very green and naive. I grew it rapidly, and all of a sudden, I had I, I couldn't keep up with the financial burdens. Uh, I had receivables that weren't coming. I had payables that were crushing me. I had loans that I couldn't fulfill and it pushed me into personal bankruptcy. Um, and so all, all of a sudden I was one, one day I was on top of the world. The next day I was standing up in bankruptcy court, explaining to the judge what, what happened. <laughs> um, and that was awful. Um, during the same period of a couple of years, my first child died. Oh, wow. And I'm so sorry. My first marriage collapsed. And uh, stacking failures, uh, not not necessarily your own fault, but, you know. And as a friend of mine, Randy Gage says, I had to ask myself at some point, you know, who was always at the scene of the crime? (laughs) Like me with my firings. It took me five to realize it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's something that the writer Neil Gaiman said once, which I really love. That that um, to write requires the the this is I'm paraphrasing, not his exact words, requires the arrogance of a teenager with the humility of a Buddhist monk, and it's kind of like. I had the arrogance of the teenager part, right? I think it's really important to believe in yourself and to believe what you believe and to know what you know and to not let anybody change your mind. And, you know, when you have this idea, hold tight. And uh, at the same time, you also got to keep the doors open and listen for the wisdom of people who actually do know better than you (laughs) about some things. Uh, and I had a I had a hard time with that second part when I was young in in my first few decades of adulthood. I, I was not open to wise, sage advice that might have saved me from some of those heartaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's like learning the hard way does impart a kind of uh, wisdom through pain that I think is you know yeah. can be useful. I think it's the only way I learn sometimes, uh, to be honest. But maybe that's just because I'm so good at failing or whatever it is that uh, I learned bit by bit. Uh, there is a book. I don't know if you've read Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. Oh, love that book. It's one of my favorite. I've read it a few times because I'm starting to do some writing. I'm I'm, right. co- I'm collaborating on a book right now that's going to come out next month, but um, that'll be my first thing I'm published in, but I want to write a book at some point. But I know her thing was about bad first drafts. That wasn't the language she used. And uh, having a close circle of friends who you can trust to give you feedback on it, but not like just random people, people who you tr- trust and look up to. I'll tell you. And that's something that I learned. And, and out of out of a lot of those early, the crucible of those early crash and burn failures, I, I learned exactly what you're talking about was how to gracefully, 
humbly but productively embrace getting critiqued and in writing. And I don't know what your experience has been like, Ben. I'm really I'd be interested to know. For me, like I said, I've published over 30 books. So it isn't like any of these books are my first rodeo at this point, mm-hmm. but it still happens for me. When I get I put a manuscript in my editor's hands and then it comes back with her editorial letter, which is you know a couple of pages of, she's really smart. She only starts out with, here's what I love about this. And then she gives me the bad news. Yeah. The sandwich, the good, the bad, the good sandwich. Is that that? <laughs> and the bad, yeah. And the bad news. Yeah. Here's what doesn't work. Here's what I think, you know, and it crushes me every time. It's like it's so emotionally wounding because writing is so personal. Mm-hmm. But I, I've, I've learned how to keep my ears open and not let my spirit be crushed when somebody I trust who's qualified says, yeah, good idea, but no. <laughs> I heard the concept of kill your darlings. Is that a thing that uh, yeah. is related? Yeah, exactly. Murder your darlings. Um, <laughs> Murder them. I like that you go even more intense. But if you want to explain for the listeners who uh, don't want to hear yeah. my explanation of what that Arthur is. Quiller, Sir Arthur Quiller Crouch, uh, one of my favorite quotes. And it's been it's been picked up by Hemingway and, you know, a, a billion writers since. Uh, at some point you have to murder your darlings and it's it's what it is is it's in writing it's really vivid um it happened for me for example in steel fear i'll use that as an example again uh actually it happened in 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 go-giver too but but in steel fear i had this this first thing i wrote in that book was a prologue which i thought was the most brilliant part of the book and then and at the end of the at the end of the writing of the whole process Someone said this prologue just is like is not working. And I tried to fix it. And I tried like six different ways to make the prologue work. And the final solution was amputate it and pitch it. <laughs> and it was like, I thought it was the best part of the book, and it wasn't. It didn't work. More like an amateur log than a prologue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It was a dilettante log, beginner log. So how hard was that? How hard was that for you? It was it was extremely difficult. Um, it became less difficult with the next thriller and it became next di- less difficult with the next thriller. I mean, it really, it is something that gets easier and easier with time because in part, my underlying faith that this is going to work is stronger. So it becomes easier for me. Like it, originally it was like, if I let go of that, then the whole book won't work. No, 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 no. There's got to be a way where if I let go of that, the book can still work. And let me extrapolate that to life experience. You're telling me this belief I'm holding is not true? This belief I'm holding is not working for me? Can I let go of this belief and still be okay as a person? Can I let go of this piece of my identity? Like I'm a public speaker. I'm really attached to being a public speaker. What if I never gave another speech again in my life? And if I, you know, what if I took a different course when I was a performer, when I was a musician and performer? It's like that was my identity. Letting, you know, and I always, when I stopped, I always was like, well, I'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. It's like I couldn't be me. I couldn't justify my existence unless there was a part of that existence that was me being on stage with my cello. Mm-hmm. Well, is there a world where I'm not only me, but the best version of me and playing the cello isn't part of that? That's like, you know, my first marriage, when that blew up, it crushed my picture of who I was because my parents stayed married until they died. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. 
That's how marriage works. So what does that say about me? Uh, yeah, you know, you have to be able to let go of things that you thought you cherished, that you mm -hmm. thought were critical, that you thought were essential to your being. But in the long term, in the big picture, turned out to be kind of like the stepladder that you climb to get to the top of the wall to jump over to the next next part of your path. You don't need the stepladder once you climb up on the wall. It's terrible to say that about a marriage because, you know, it sounds so crass and so cold when I say it that way. But it's true about everything, a career, a, a persona, a belief, a, a prologue in your mm -hmm. early manuscript that turns I out think sucks. What it sounds like. So I, my parents were divorced basically before I had memories. So like at, at three years old. So it was yeah. the complete opposite in terms of like what marriage would be like. I didn't really have much of a role model in that sense, but I think right. it's all about, for me, expectations. So I always have to try to have no or low expectations because if I if I expect it and then I don't get it, it's like it was taken from me even though I never had it. If I don't expect it, I don't feel the loss of it. So even the fictional life you had, I mean, even though you're married, whatever the life you told yourself would be, like when you're, you know, and you're elderly together, hanging out, whatever, retired and all that stuff and you you live out these fictional fantasies of expectation i try to say have high hopes but no expectations because that's when i really get upset i'm like oh i had that thing but i didn't really have it you know i've published books where i you asked about you asked about this earlier with the go-giver I've, I've published books where i fervently absolutely believed that they were going to be smash successes, you know, blockbusters. And not only did I believe that that was going to happen in the future, but I began living on that reality, like almost like spending money on credit. Yep. You know, I began living the life of this best-selling author of that particular book that was, had sold a million copies and then book and, and the book would come out and, you know, do okay, but not great. Yeah. Uh, in one case, it took me like three or four years to kind of get my legs back. It's like, how can the world exist and that book not be a success, not be the success that I was envisioning? What was the name of that book? Just out of curiosity. Do you remember? Well, was the ghostwriting situation? It's interesting. It's It was the uh, the first time that happened to me was with the original version of The Go-Giver Leader. And this is a great failure story. The mm -hmm. Go-Giver Leader wasn't originally called The Go-Giver Leader. The publisher chose a title, which was It's Not About You. And that was going to be a follow-on book to The Go-Giver. And when it came out, everybody who read it loved it, but not very many people read it. <laughs> and after a couple of years, Bob and I, you know, had scratched our heads and scratched our heads and scratched our heads. My ego had been crushed. My expectations had been dashed. The book didn't do that well. And it finally occurred to us that people uh, looked at this title. It's not about you. And said, well, it's not about me. I guess I won't buy it. I guess I won't read it. <laughs> Oops. Like, don't read this book is basically what it says. Yeah, right. Uh, and me, Abby Hoppin can write a book that says steal this book, you know, but that th th maybe it worked for him. But... That's a good. Uh, so I just thought of two, but I don't know. That one worked. So we actually went to our to our publisher and said, not having a lot of hope that this would work. We said, would you be open to yanking the book and republishing it? Different title, different cover, total remake. That doesn't happen very often because publishers made a certain financial investment in this book the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. And they went, they listened to what we had to say and said, yeah, you got it. We'll do it. And we did it. And we relaunched the book as the book it should have been in the first place, 
the Go-Giver Leader, I rewrote a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly it's the same book, but it just was in a different context. Uh, it was framed the way it should have been framed, and the book has done really well. Um, but there were a couple of years there where I was like, well, crap, am I, am I a one hit wonder? Can, will I never write a book that people love again? You know, it's like, so, you know, you're right about expectations. They, they're, for me, there's an interesting tension between the value of goals, mm -hmm. the value of an aspiration and a vision for the future with the urgency of contentment with the moment. And I think that for my first few decades as an adult, I parlayed my present moment against the value of the future. I lived mm -hmm. for the realization of my goals. What was my day worth? My day was with only what, what it contributed to that goal, that successful business, that successful book, that benchmark that I was aiming at. And I had a number of those goals dashed to the point where I finally began to realize it. I was ignoring the value of my present day. Somebody asked me for my definition of success a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I found myself saying to me, success is living with someone you love, doing what you were born to do, what you were put here to do and doing it well. And that's, if that's success, I can do that every day. I don't have to prepare for that. Mm -hmm. I don't have to, to, you know, to wait three months or three years or three decades for that to be fulfilled. I can have that happen right now, today, no matter what I'm doing in terms of productivity. And productivity is still really important to me. Goals yeah. are still really important to me. I still have very ambitious goals around my books, but I don't hang my life, my happiness and ful fulfillment on the realization of those future goals anymore. It does sound like you need one other person at least, though, to love you in that scenario to for it to work out that you can't control all the time. It's you know I've been married three times. Nice. The first two did not work out. The first mm -hmm. two both ended in divorce. Uh, they say that the third time's a charm, and at least for me, that's been the case. Um, I said, "Oh, nice," like weirdly, as if it's a good thing. But my dad's on his third marriage, so for some yeah. reason, that makes sense. In second bankruptcy, so or he's done two of those. So uh, you there know, you I'm go. Seeing some some correlations but i've thought like if i don't go bankrupt i have achieved not going down the same path <laughs> like there's been weird milestones that i've just like i'm never going to do that no matter what even if it makes yeah. sense you know yeah. because i felt like that was the wrong path to take even though uh who knows yeah. there's, i mean there's, there's legitimate good times where you should declare bankruptcy but like it's one of those things where i'm like i'm gonna try to avoid that because i remember when my dad co-signed on a loan and they took my car in the middle of the night my girlfriend's person. And I'm like, I was paying everything on time. What are you doing? Like, I, had well, a guy, I had a guy, big guy, big as a refrigerator. His name was Chris. Show up at my door at 11 o'clock one night. Sorry, dude, I need your keys. And he took them. Uh, and that was just a terrible, terrible feeling. It was what was terrible? Losing the car? No. The blow to my self-image, the blow mm -hmm. to who I thought I was. It, it crushed, you know, it put a dent in who I thought I was that I didn't think I could ever repair. Yeah, until you build up like a shield yeah. of armor. Yeah, or just a just a, a, a resiliency, maybe. Yeah, resiliency. I think resiliency, which I guess would be the shield. I mean, whereas it doesn't hurt you as much, you realize you're not. Every, yeah. After you fail enough times, you realize, well, maybe I should have some humility uh, going into this. I uh, one of my first books. I remember the editor was 
was talking, it was a nonfiction book. And we were at one point in the book, we were talking about, uh, you know, presenting in front of people and the editor had put in some, some suggestions. And one of the suggestions she put in was that, was that the, we say, um, never let, never let them, uh, it's okay to be nervous when you speak, but never let the audience see it. Never let the audience know it. And I remember thinking, damn, she's got that exactly wrong. Yeah, that's the fake it till you make it thing that I hate. This is a person who has no clue what the hell she's talking about. Yeah. And in fact, I even wrote wrote that into the, which one? The Go-Giver Leader, um, where there's a whole scene with Aunt L and Ben. Ben, hey, what do you hey, know? Yeah. Uh, where she talks about how she used to think that her father had told her that. Never let them see you. Never let them see you sweat. And she discovered that it was the opposite. Let them see your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. She stood up in her first big speech and said, I am right now, I am so terrified, I think I might pass out. And she yeah. said the audience was suddenly right with her and they stayed with her the whole time. Because they want you to succeed. They don't want you to fail, especially if yeah. they know you're human. You know? Real leaders understand the the value and, and, and the necessity of vulnerability, um, it, which is not the same thing as weakness. It's mm -hmm. not the same thing as lack of resolve. You can have tremendous resolve and also be vulnerable. You can have tremendous strength and also be, you know, open to a, a, your flaws being exposed and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. Um, randomly, I was reminded of the fact that I, I wrote, and when I say wrote, I mean dictated for about two hours or three hours, a spiritual successor to the go-giver. And it's called, I even have the domain, <laughs> when givers meet. So it was about, like the arms race that happens when two people who are givers meet and keep trying to outgive each other, you know, and it just keeps getting better and better versus yeah. when you mean a taker who will just like drain your life when it's yeah. the other way around and you, and it's like, who can outgive the other one? It's like kind of one of those magical moments where you don't know what'll happen, but you keep trying to elevate the other person. And if you're both really good at it, it's, uh, it's like yeah. a feedback loop that yeah. keeps ratcheting up. Uh, some of my, most of the books that I've written, not all, but most have been co-authorships where I'm part oh, yeah. of another guy, right? So you're like when givers meet you and Bob. It's, it's you know, I've had experiences with 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 a handful of co-authors. Some of them have been more cursory partnerships where you know, I wrote their book and that was great. Most, most of the people I've written with have been really just super, super people. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, with Bob, we've done, you know, a handful of books, almost a half a dozen books together. And it's been like you described. Um, I just wrote a book with Dan Rockwell, you know, who wrote, who uh, created the the uh, Leadership Freak blog. I don't think and, I've heard of it, but Dan, Daniel Rockwell? Yeah, Dan Rockwell. It's called Leadership Freak, his blog. Leadershipfreak.blog. And it's cool. it's one of the most popular leadership blogs out there. He, he's a fantastic guy. But I spent, you know, a year working with Dan writing a parable. It's going to come out next fall. Mm -hmm. um, and that was it was that kind of experience working with dan is that kind of experience it's just like how can you be the, how can you be this great a guy how can you be this cool so were you worried so like i think of your book in the same realm as the greatest salesman in the world by augmandino where it's like i didn't think a fictional book made sense in a business or a self-improvement kind of scenario when you're trying to teach actual things i think you know there's like a a a big gap between like math, which has a defined answer, and then this yes. kind of creativity version. And I was like, how are they going to make this work? This is when the first time I read The Go-Giver, and I was like, well, who cares if it's not, if it's not like all 100% accurately what happened, as long as the the morals behind it and everything. And I think probably some of that's 
in the greatest salesman as well. Cause I mean, I haven't even finished the book. That's how bad my ADHD is, but I'm in, I'm also on one of the scrolls cause it says to do it for 30 days and I just haven't done it. Bite, so I'm not going to go pieces, on bite-sized pieces. Yeah. You don't, who says you have to read the whole thing to get it right. Just maybe pieces. in my lifetime, I'll read it and we'll see. Sometimes but. I'm reading a book and I'll read a sentence and I'm like, dude, I got to put this away. I got to just live with, and I'm not kidding. I'll mm-hmm. be reading a, a, a thriller and I'll read a sentence and, or a paragraph. And I'm like, I, I got to put it down now. Cause I got to live with that paragraph for, for at least a couple of hours. I got to let it rattle yeah. around my brain. It's just That's so- what the love one is. It's like, I will greet this day with love in my heart. That one I'm still living. I, I did cheat and I went to the next one. It's mostly about failure, which I was like, okay, that's cool. But I got to master the first one, obviously Yeah. to go along with it. But I, I just think it's cool because I thought, and that was in like the Christian reading section. When I went to go buy it at the store, I was like, what the heck? But right. meaning I, I was like, it's so great. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Which is interesting because it does have like a, the background a is like, yeah, a, yeah. It's got that but it's mostly not. I mean, it's universal. a lot of religions, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, applicable to everybody. And I haven't even finished it. So I could, it could take a turn. Like a really I have such weird- <laughs> tremendous admiration for Ogmandino and for people, you know, it's like, in, in my writing program, it's coming out. Mm-hmm. One of the things we talk about is 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 it, what makes a great parable or a good parable, which is really really tough. It's one of those things that looks really easy to do, and it's actually really difficult. Or to put it another way, it's really easy to write a bad one. <laughs> yeah. Because if you write a parable that's just like, it's kind of a it's a PowerPoint where you're teaching something with a couple of thinly disguised characters who really mm-hmm. are just like cardboard cutouts who are there to do this to, to put their mouths around their, their principles it doesn't touch anybody it doesn't move anybody what has to, what what has to what makes a parable like greatest salesman mm-hmm. uh, work is the heart of the story the heart of the story the human experience you've got to put you know and, and it's the story the experience has to come first before the concepts or the ideas or like the math as you're saying right well like the hero's journey is kind of the math i'd say of a lot of people's way of writing and then how good yeah. you play into the emotions of each part. Yeah. You can get it really formulaic about it. Yeah. You can get really a bunch of movies for me it. when I learned about it. I was like, Oh, I'm done with superhero movies basically at this point. Cause <laughs> I knew the formula. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. can get pretty, it can get pretty thin. <laughs> um, how did you feel uh, just pivoting to a totally different thing? How did you yeah. feel about ghostwriting? Because I, so first of all, I hired a ghostwriter, but I didn't want to call him that. So I called him a zombie writer, which is like, <laughs> I want you to take my writing and bring it back to life because it's dead. Yeah. A ghostwriter, I don't know. It seems like uh, too too far gone to re- yeah. to retrieve. <laughs> so has been, have you ever heard the term zombie writer? Is that new? I have not heard the term zombie writer. I really like it a lot. I'll tell you my experience with that is it, to me, it's kind of, there's kind of a continuum, mm-hmm. which go- starts with editing, then goes to zombie writer. Or ghostwriter, as some people yeah. call it, then goes to author. You know, we, and, and it's it's a it's kind of a continuum by which I mean, they aren't clear cut categories for me. Um, I've written books that, or I'm the co-author, but it's really the other person's stuff. Like I wrote a book called um, uh, uh, "Take the Lead." Mm-hmm. It's a book about leadership. And I wrote it with this person who was the director of the Office for Women in the Clinton White House. And she was the COO of the Obama campaign. So she was very, very involved in politics at the highest level. Yeah. These are her experiences 
she had great Democratic friends and great Republican friends. So it was like both sides of the aisle. But these were all like her experiences and her principles. And my job was to just shape it into a coherent whole. I was so I was extractor, really, yeah. translator. <laughs> it was kind of like a glorified editorial job, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and so that's that's more like ghostwriting. Um, then there there have been other books like Mastering Fear. You mentioned mm-hmm. there's a book I wrote with Brandon Webb, my Navy SEAL friend. That's a book about mastering fear. It's a how-to book, five steps to mastering all the, the worst fears in your life so they become your your allies. It's mm-hmm. turning your, turning your enemies into your allies. Really, it's a, it's a Bob Bird kind of kind of concept, but it's about fear in your life. It's a lot based on Brandon's experience in the military and in the corporate world because he is a very successful entrepreneur, but it's also based a lot on my experiences in my life. And in those kind of books, I'm kind of serving as his ghostwriter, but a lot of me starts to leak in. So it's really a collaborative enterprise. The go-giver is like 50% Bob and 50% me. It's a mishma. It's, it's a, it's a true 50-50 co-authorship. It's funny because I've listened to the audiobook and now I've talked to both of you. So it's interesting to hear your voices. Yeah, yeah. We read the audiobooks. <laughs> versus and my wife and I read the audiobook for the Goalgiver Marriage. I gotta read that. I have not which was a blast. I've not never been mar- married. I haven't even tried that one, but it's probably got some concepts that are helpful pre-marriage. It concepts really apply the concepts we know it, it's about marriage very particularly, but it's also broadly about just human relationships. Um, the the subtitle is the five secrets to lasting love, and you could call it the five secrets to lasting friendship. It's really five principles to create value in your relationships that will last last a lifetime. So you know you don't have to be married to. Well, from what I've seen from your face, you lit up most when you mentioned the marriage one. So yeah. is that the one you've had the most fun? Is that your favorite like experience of writing a book? Or my wife, you know, my wife is my best friend. It, it's just, it was this one unique experience. <laughs> Unique experience. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing like it. No. Yeah. But that's amazing. I mean, it's nice to be able to take your significant other and look, loop them into what you're doing. It's also the most recent parable I've written. And mm-hmm. honestly, you know, you asked me once before we started recording, what was my favorite book? And, I, and the go-giver is my favorite book of my, of my books in a way, because it's the book that kind of created my whole career. I'm very grateful to the go-giver, yeah. but honestly, I've enjoyed each next parable more. Um, and this this go-giver marriage was the was the parable I most recently wrote, and it's two halves. The first half is a parable. The second half is kind of the how-to principles. But mm-hmm. she she mostly wrote the second half. I mostly wrote the first half. And uh, it's, is that how it, you guys are together? Is she more the get things done to do list kind of person? You're the uh, got a, a master's in psychology, and she is a, a certified or she's a, a I forget the phrase is certified is it is licensed marriage family therapist. So this is her okay. life. So this is what she does. So yeah, she's really she wants got, to give practical yeah, tips and advice. Exactly. She's the second half of the book is like, okay, here's what you just learned from the from the story, and here's how to apply it in your life. Let me reverse it. Like a workbook kind of thing, almost. Exactly. 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 I like that because then you get like something to not only an action plan from the story, but you get like a way to implement it, which I think probably some of your training and stuff. I know Bob mentioned you guys are doing some sort of stuff with the go-giver community. And I'm sure that's a lot of that, like putting that into action piece that maybe would would be the second half of the go-giver if it was written by your your wife as well. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. (laughs) Um, Is there anything specific you wanted to mention? I wanted to, I wanted to know about how you get the balls 
so to speak, to make your own high school by dropping out of high school. It seems like that path is a very bizarre one to take to not even graduate one, but to go, I'm going to make my own high school. There's something about either the way my brain works or or the way my parents view life, or maybe it's a combination of both. Something about but where I came from or other that, that just um, produced a, a, a sort of a, a mindset or an attitude, which is like, if you want to try it, just try it, just do it. I can make, you know, my mom would say you can do anything. And, mm-hmm. and she, she would hold me to it. You know, if I had an idea when I tried it, she would hold me to it and say, try it, do it. Um, the, the idea, and it's not that that's without some fear and trepidation. The okay. idea of writing a novel for years seemed like an impossible mountain to climb to me. My wife is the one who kept saying, you would be a great novelist. You'd be, you, you'd be able to do this. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't know how people do that. I can't imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I just really love taking on new challenges, especially in areas that I fall in love with. So th- with the high school, it was like I had a couple of friends who had, had, were talking about what, what, what a school, what the ideal school would look like. They hated their school. I hated my school. And they said, here's what an ideal school would look like. And I was like, no, we could do that. And so yeah. no one else is going to do it. Yeah. So we just so we just did. And, uh, and how, did it work out well? And then it worked out really well. Yeah. First, our first major decision was to hire a director because we knew we needed an, an adult. We were all teenagers, and we, we actually—I need an adult. To help me. We did. We knew we, we needed. We knew we needed one adult. Yeah. To, uh, we, we didn't want to do Lord of the Flies, um, <laughs> so we, we we interviewed a handful, about half dozen of of you know highly qualified, fascinating people, and we ended up hiring this director. I say hiring because we had no money, but we. I think it's hilarious that a group of students are uh, interviewing. Yeah, teachers to see if they're good these guys. And we hired an amazing man who was a novelist and an educator, and he came and joined us. And he was he was uh, you know if, if it hadn't been for him, the school wouldn't have happened. And, and if it hadn't been for us, the school wouldn't have happened. So it was a it was a real marriage of tremendous ambition and aspiration and belief. It's amazing at that age you could even high, uh, interview and and choose the right person that well. I guess it's probably fortunate that baby. they came. Yeah, they came in, but also like some good, if some bad people came, if you only got bad people, you would probably pick the best of the worst, I guess, right? We got great people. They were all fantastic. Wouldn't you say that's uh, lucky or to, if I had a group of students and they were looking for someone to run a new high school, I mean, it would seem like I'd get the weirdest bunch of, of teachers. No, you wouldn't, because it, it, for someone to take that seriously enough to go and sit down with these kids, it's got to be somebody who 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 can who can appreciate the audacity uh, and the sincerity mm-hmm. uh, behind it. Uh, and who's sick of the system probably that they already worked in, I imagine. Sick of the system, but also genuinely wanted to create something. It's like, yeah. we didn't want to drop out of school. We didn't, want to, we didn't want to just like do nothing. We weren't trying to move away from school. We wanted to have a school where you could really, where we could learn what we really wanted to learn, where we could learn what was meaningful to us. And in our first set, in our first semester, we had courses ranging from nutrition to computer science to, to English literature to foreign languages to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, fifty different courses. Yeah, yeah 50, 50 kids. <laughs> well, I think what you're doing is right. I mean, a lot of times, uh, high school education system is more about like industrialization more than teaching what you need to know. It's more like make sure they pass the test, make sure they do this, but not make sure they're prepared for the real world. It's it's just have a way to make sure they got through it. Cause like, for example, uh, it doesn't matter. I won't go into that part, but I, I'm, I'm amazed how much I didn't learn in school that I needed to know 
once I got into the real world. There's a tremendous amount, obviously, available now because of the of the of the externalization of our nervous systems in the internet. So mm-hmm. it's a different world. It's a different environment of information than it was then. Um, but you know, I I, I am eternally um, amazed by the vivacity, by by the the um, enthusiasm and exuberance and exhilaration and and creative energy of young people. And, you know, when I hear people say, oh, kids these days, like they have no attention span. I'm like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? Kids have no attention span? I'm sorry. <laughs> you must be looking, talking about adults. Um, kids have just enormous attention span. It's just a different flavor of attention span. They're mm-hmm. used to dealing with, you know, six different inputs at one time. A multitasking kind of a yeah, or, attention span. Kind of the, the, digital, the digital environment. But that's just the, that's just the environment that they've, that they've grown up with. But within that environment, the the capacity to focus is um, is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, Especially when they're inspired. Um, before I get to the last two questions, which are like forward looking, is there anything on the historical subject of failure that you want to touch on before we go to like a, it's like a present slash forward looking type of stuff? Um, you know, there's just there's so much to be said about failure. But I, you know, I had a, a, a writing teacher. I did. I have studied with a few people, and I had a screenwriting teacher who was brilliant and hugely influential. And he taught us in one advanced course. He had a, a thing called the Pro Series for people who were really intent. And that was my plan to be a screenwriter. By the way, that was the okay. failure. I was my, I was on my way to Hollywood to be a screenwriter. Bob Berg um, destroyed that that ambition <laughs> because he brought me this idea for the Go Giver, and so that you know Bob destroyed Berg, in the best usage of the word destroyed. Bob Berg I, ruined my career. I like to say. <laughs> um, but, Who knows what you what amazing movies you would have made? Well, <laughs> the, um, the the jury's not out yet. We'll still can one of these Steel Fear. I mean, one of these Fear books could be made into a movie. Steel Fear and Cold Fear are being developed are in development now as a TV series. It's going to happen. So You're basically, a screenwriter. Well, I'm not part part of the TV writing team, but that's okay. I'm. I said basically. Anyway, I don't know what that means. But go ahead. <laughs> to finish to finish that story, um, he in this course he said, you know, I've taught you a ton of techniques and specifics about writing, but there are two things you need to master if you want to be a successful A-list writer in Hollywood. The first is that your writing has to be brilliant. It has to be exceptional. It has to be extraordinary. Not good, not great, but better than your best. You have to you have to practice it literally every day and 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 always succeed where you are exceed yourself. Mm-hmm. Second thing is you got to be easy to work with, man. You can't be a dick. You can't be mm. an asshole. You've got to be somebody who's easy to work with because nobody in Hollywood, legends notwithstanding, wants to work with a prima donna with a jerk. Yeah. Um, and and for me, being easy to work with equals and he kind of went into this as well equals. Being willing to take advice from other people, be willing to take notes, as they say in Hollywood, being able to to do your best and then have other people say, okay, but we see flaws and to take that in the best possible way productively toward a, toward a better version of you. That's humility. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the, the greatest gift of failure is a productive humility, not a self-abasing humility, not a martyrdom kind of humility, but a productive success-oriented humility yeah i think the more you know about life the more you know you don't know and so the more you go well nobody really knows anything and the more you have faith in those things that you sort of do know it's like oprah has a saying i you Mm -hmm. know i i I forget what it is specific about i know this 
about whatever. What is it she said? I have no idea what she said. But I, I know that I have to be in like the, I have to be in like the top two percent. This I know. It's like her. That's your tagline. This I know or oh. whatever. But there's things that you know from yeah. your experience that that are there that may not be brilliant, but there are things that you know in your gut. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, for sure. And more faith with with those, and then being open to all the rest of as you say. I don't know what I don't know, and other people do. Other yeah. people know. Or like, so my thing is Excel. I teach Excel, but like I would rank myself whatever, like a seven out of ten in Excel. But I'm like a nine point nine out of ten for the general population. But I just know how many pieces of it I don't know how it works. You know, the more you kind of know the whole scope, the more you realize how little you know of, of mostly any subject or any kind of thing. So yeah. yeah. Um, being a guest on the show, you get a get out of fail free card, <laughs> which is similar to the Monopoly card and mostly the name. I'm gonna hand this right. through the internet to you. I always make a new sound. That was the weirdest one I've ever made. Um, so get out of fail free card. So what it does is I'll read what it says here, but it says, What would you do? What would you pursue if you couldn't fail? And this is now I try to make it a you now, not like going back in time, but like if you could do anything for me to be stand-up comedy because i know there's a lot of failure involved in bombing and stuff like that i'm going to try in the next three weeks to get up on stage and do an open mic but we'll see um what is something that you would do now if you didn't have to deal with any of your obligations that you've you think you'd be good at but it's like so much failure involved that you don't want to even go down that path and you'd use this card to save yourself some heartache great question um start a whole new novel series thriller series um i i'm i'm you know hip deep in the in the chief finn series this mm-hmm. it's, it's a continuing series uh steel fear cold fear blind fear whatever comes next and that's like an established thing um but to branch off and also do something brand new all uh would be terrifying what do you um, think it'd be um Hold that question for about nine months and you'll see it because I'm 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 gonna do that. Okay. Well then it sounds like you're gonna use the card in, in nine months, yeah, maybe. maybe. Um and then I hate we kind of touched on it, but I hate fake it till you make it. I'm not a big fan of that phrase. It seems like it's got imposter syndrome baked yes. into it. Doesn't my matter. my version is fail it till you nail it. So what is the thing that you're doing now that you're not sure is gonna work, but you're gonna fail it till you nail it? That's a really good question. I got I, I actually do have an answer. Um, I have a business model for my writing, which has always been since the Go-Giver and before, which has been I team up with somebody, I do the writing, they do the marketing. And the belief behind that is I'm no good at marketing. That's not my area. I don't know how to do that. I don't want to do that. It's like, it's not my deal. Mm-hmm. That is just a lie I've been telling myself. That's a false assumption. Same. And that's not a, it's not a good life a uh, 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 rule for myself because what I've learned is that when you're a writer, unless you're like a staff writer for a magazine and you're an employee, yeah. when you're a writer, you're an entrepreneur and you need to own the entrepreneurial space that you're standing on. You need to own your, your territory, which means um, you need to be responsible for getting your book out to your audience, for reaching your readers, for creating readers, for reaching a marketplace. Long story short, I am uh, now 
abandoning that business model to the extent of saying, yeah, but I need to learn how to market books. I need to learn how to reach my audience. I need to learn how to get out to a readership and and, and do all those things that I kind of shied away from. They said, Bob can do that. Or yeah, self-limiting beliefs kind of stuff. Self-limiting beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, what I, and I've, I tried that once a couple of years ago. I, 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 I made a stab at, at self-publishing and doing a big marketing push and it, it just, it didn't go that well. And so that was that was the the burn, the failure that mm-hmm. allowed me to go off and nurse my wounds and say, well, I'll never try that again. Well, no. I'm, no yeah, you, just gotta, you just got to recover after oh, a God. while. Yeah, um, you nail. So what would you, where would you point people to go to check out what you're doing these days to keep up with you? What, what kind of social medias or websites, anything like that you want to mention? Sure. Uh, my kind of my, my central clearinghouse is, is my website, which is my name, John David Mann, two N's. Dot com. And uh, I've got a separate website for the for the Finn series of books, and I've got a separate website for the Go Giver Marriage, but it's all, you can find it all there on, on, on my site, johndavidman.com. Great. And uh, how many times do you think in your life you said two ends? Two ends. I've said it quite a few times. Because <laughs> I'd probably get, uh, or I mean, I hate when, I'm, when I buy a domain name and I have to spell it every time. That's when I realize I hate having to spell things over and over. <laughs> if it's your own name, I'm sure it gets, it can get tiring over time. You typed in John David Mann with one N. I don't know if you'll, I've never tried and see if you got anything. Maybe we get some other guy. I'll try after the, after this, but thank you so much for joining the show. I appreciate it. Hopefully the guests joined, enjoyed it because I certainly did. And uh, I can't wait to see what you're doing in nine months, whatever the hell that, that little secret is. Uh, we'll see where, where that takes you. Stay in touch. We'll see. It'll be fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Ben. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over five hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook, which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.